Welcome to the Christian History Podcast, Chapter 7, Episode 21. Last week, I wrapped up the history of the places conquered by the Israelites after they crossed the Jordan and were being led by Joshua. That list is found at the end of Joshua chapter 12 and includes some 31 places and their kings. The episode also marked the podcast's fifth anniversary, so I provided the annual update. There was one thing I forgot to mention as part of the update, which I'll get to at the end of this edition. If you missed that episode, you should really go back and give it a listen. All of this, of course, gets me to Joshua 13, the subject of this and the next couple of episodes. And with that, let's get started. The first paragraph of chapter 13 is chock full of history. It reads, Now, Joshua was old and advanced in years. And I'm going to pause here for a second. This sentence alone leads many to believe that from this point forward in the Old Testament narrative, that these events occurred well after, meaning years after, perhaps decades after the first several chapters of the book. And recall that in many places in those first chapters, parts of the narrative would wrap up with the phrase, to this day, like it does in chapter 8 when we're told that Joshua burned eye and made it forever a heap of ruins, as it is to this day. Carrying this forward, these scholars think that the point in time that to this day points to is the second half of the book, when Joshua was an old man and the events from much earlier, when the Israelites took over Canaan, when these events were finally recorded in writing. Picking up again in chapter 13, God said to Joshua, You are old and advanced in years, and very much of the land still remains to be possessed. This is the land that still remains. All the regions of the Philistines, and all those of the Geshurites, from the Shear, which is east of Egypt, northward to the boundary of Ekron, it is reckoned as Canaanite. There are five rulers of the Philistines, those of Gaza, Ashdod, Ashkelon, Gath, and Ekron, and those of the Avam in the south. All the land of the Canaanites, and Mirah that belongs to the Sidonians, to Aphek, to the boundary of the Amorites, and the land of the Gabalites, and all of Lebanon, toward the east, from Belgad below Mount Hermon, to Lebo Hamath, all the inhabitants of the hill country from Lebanon to Mizrifoth Maim, even all the Sidonians. And that part of the text is dense with people and places to cover. Similar to the last part of chapter 12, there are a few places and kings that I've already touched on, like the Geshurites, who were covered in chapter 6, episode 10, Gaza in chapter 6, episode 8, and Ashdod in chapter 7, episode 15. In this episode, I'll get to Shear and Ekron. The rest will have to wait for the episodes to come. First up is Shear, which may be the same place as Shear Libnath, but probably isn't. Assuming the place with the name is singular, it merited less than a handful of mentions in the Old Testament. Twice in Joshua, once in First Chronicles, and last in Isaiah. In all but one of these, the mention was of a purely geographic sense. Isaiah is a bit harder to decipher. 
Essentially, the struggle in Isaiah is between how much of what he wrote in this passage was allegorical and how much was fact. In his 23rd chapter, Isaiah was ruminating on the coastal city of Tyre. Here he recorded, Well, O ships of Tarshish, for your fortress is destroyed, probably meaning the city was raised or burned, as the footnote records it was without houses. He continues, When they came in from Cyprus, they learned of it. Be still, O inhabitants of the coast, O merchants of Sidon, your messengers crossed over the sea and were on the mighty waters. Your revenue was the grain of shear, the harvest of the Nile. You were the merchant of the nations. The city of Tyre had been struck down by something. What to make of this? At least the part about shear. Obviously, they grew grain in, or at least near the city. Which also means the land was fertile enough and got enough precipitation to support the crop, and perhaps livestock. Also, they traded with Tyre. But there's something else, slightly between the lines. Somehow, in some way, Shear is associated with the Nile, so ancient Egypt, at least at the time of Isaiah. There's no clue in the text if he was referring to the same place, or even the general place as in Joshua, but there's also nothing saying he wasn't. Circling back to Joshua in chapter 19, a place named Shear Libnap is mentioned as delineating the boundary of the territory allotted to the tribe of Asher, likely in close proximity to Mount Carmel, probably on the western side of the mountain, which was on the eastern boundary of Asher, where it bordered Naphtali. Asher was a coastal tribe, with territory that ran north past the city of Tyre, and south to about Akshaf, which is in the north of Canaan, meaning it was well away from Egypt and the Nile. How to square this with what Isaiah wrote? If his words are taken literally, it would have to be a different place. In my mind, though, it would likely be better to think of them in more of a figurative sense. Perhaps the agriculture around Shear was as fertile as that of the Nile. Or maybe there was a nearby river that was similar. At least, that's one theory. Another is that it was indeed in Egypt, possibly near the city of Ramses. Proponents of this theory tend to think of it as possibly being one and the same as the ancient city of Tanis, and with that, the association with Nile makes sense. As for the outside record, there's nothing. Yet another mystery lost to the passage of time. Moving along. Next up is the city of Ekron. This was another of the five infamous cities of the Philistine Pentapolis. At least this makes it more identifiable than Shear and places it in southwestern Canaan. Later, in the just barely BC era of the Maccabees, it would be known as Acherin. Close enough. In the time in between, so from Joshua to the Greek occupation, the period when the Old Testament was written, it had numerous mentions in the text. Like most all of the other places I've covered, many of these are of a geographic sort. But a few were different. It was assigned to the tribe of Dan, 
though the text is really clear that the Israelites never came to occupy it, at least not early on. Several other mentions were in 1 Samuel and refer to the period when the Philistines held the Ark of the Covenant after defeating the Israelites. I've covered that story several times, so I'll try to avoid redundancy. Just know that in that instance, the city of Ekron was the last stop of the Ark. There, the people had seen enough of the plagues brought onto the other cities to know better. The people of Ashdod sent the Ark from their city to Ekron. But when the Ark came to them, the people cried out, Why have they brought to us the Ark of the God of Israel to kill us and our people? They gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, Send away the Ark of the God of Israel and let it return to its own place, that it may not kill us and our people. There was a deathly panic throughout the whole city. The hand of God was very heavy there. Those who did not die were stricken with tumors, and the cry of the city went up to heaven. After this, in a very condensed version, the Philistines sent the ark back to Israel. The next substantial mention in the text is in 2 Kings. In this part, King Ahab had just died, and Moab rebelled against Israel. Then, there's a really dense portion of the narrative I'll avoid for now. I'll circle back to it at some point in the future. The important thing to note at this point is that the city was still under Canaanite, possibly Philistine influence and control. The short version is that messengers were sent to Ekron to inquire of Beelzebub, who is said to be the god of Ekron. That's simple enough to understand. And yes, this Beelzebub is likely the same as Beelzebub, a.k.a the Lord of the Flies. More on that in the next episode. In several of the books of the prophets, so later in the Old Testament, and in this case the prophets are Jeremiah, Zephaniah, and Zechariah, Ekron is mentioned, usually in association with Ashdod, Gaza, and Ashkelon, all Philistine cities, and all usually cursed by the prophets. And that's it in the text. In the outside record, there is no agreed-upon place that is the location of this city. Several have been suggested, including Akur, Quatra, and Zikrin, also Caesarea Maritima, literally, a Roman maritime city. At least all of these were considered. But recently, a definitive location has been identified. And in this case, recently means as late as 1996. It was then that an inscription bearing the name was found, located on a tell named Tel Mikni. This places it about 22 miles, 35 kilometers west of Jerusalem, near what's thought to have been the Philistine city of Gath, and in the coastal plain of present-day Israel. While the conclusive identification of this is of a very recent sort, This location was first suggested in 1958, which, in a true historic sense, is recent too. It would take close to another 40 years to nail it down as the definitive location. The location on the tell is conclusive enough for a little exploration. The earliest artifacts uncovered at the site date to the Stone Age, though these are few and far between likely meaning either the population was small, 
or the site was not regularly occupied. Most artifacts date to the early Bronze Age or later. For some yet-to-be-determined reason, sometime around 2000 BC, the city was abandoned, only to be reoccupied around 1600 BC. This would place the reoccupation around the time Jacob and family relocated to Egypt. While the Israelites were in Egypt, and the Canaanites controlled the greater region, which included Ekron, the city experienced an expansion, but not of any remarkable sort. For the next couple hundred years, Ekron was of moderate size, likely only of an average sort, especially when compared to the other four members of the Philistine Pentapolis, at least what would become this group of cities. Artifacts from this period point towards contact and trade with other societies from across the region. Uncovered artifacts include pottery, likely originating in Cyprus, Mycenae, and Anatolia. While no direct Egyptian pottery pieces have been found, what has been uncovered are pieces that show Egyptian influences. There have also been shards that include a burial with a 19th century Egyptian dynasty seal and a 14th century BC scarab that bears the name of Egyptian pharaoh Amenhotep III. It certainly shows contact between the city and the Egyptians. Sometime in the 13th century BC, and corresponding with the theorized invasion of the Sea Peoples, along with the Bronze Age collapse, the city was burned. This is evidenced by the charred remains of what's thought to be the primary public building, probably a storehouse, as it contains several jars with carbonized grains, lentils, and figs, burnt produce. After this, the city was rebuilt sometime in the 12th century BC by the Philistines. It was at this time that Ekron is believed to have become a full-fledged member of the Pentapolis. Artifacts from the period include the usual pottery indicating contact with other regional players. There's also a limestone bathtub, along with an industrial kiln. Somewhat surprising are the numerous artifacts that were remarkably similar to finds from the same dates but located in the Aegean region. These provide substantial credence to the Greek origin theory of the legendary Sea Peoples. Among these are the typical religious artifacts which I've covered many times before. There were also weaving loom weights, lava stands used for the purification of priests, a bronze Janus-faced linchpin from a chariot wheel, among many others. But it wasn't just Greek isle-influenced items. There were artifacts from Egypt, including decorated earplugs and a ring depicting the female Egyptian deity, Sakmet. The text in Joshua 13, the part I began the episode with, that text shows that the Israelites did not conquer the city. Not that there was any sort of confusion, especially when considering the prolonged, deadly incident with the Ark. Instead, the city would remain primarily Philistine, at least in the early part of the Old Testament. Though as time progressed, it would become the disputed region between the Philistines and the tribe of Judah. From this period, archaeologists have found what were either new or rebuilt fortifications, which included a city wall and a three-entry gate protected by a gatehouse, 
similar to those excavated at other nearby Philistine cities. East of the gate, a 260-foot, 80-meter-long row of stables or storehouses was uncovered, and it's associated with a large public building. This stable was built between the city wall and an outer screening wall. There was also a large cache of seven well-preserved large iron agricultural tools and nine four-horned limestone altars. All of this, taken together, attests to a large, economically successful city. At the time controlled by the Philistines, and the bane of the Israelites. The strife between the Israelites and the Philistines would take a back seat after the Assyrians took over in the 8th century BC. The city was sieged in 712 BC, a siege that was prominent enough that it was depicted in reliefs on the walls on the Neo-Assyrian king Sargon's II's palace at Korseba. This is a city in the modern country of Iraq. Later, after Sargon's death, and when his son Sennacherib ruled, Ekron revolted against him and expelled his governor. The governor, named Paddy, was sent to the Judean king Hezekiah in Jerusalem, of course, for safekeeping. The Neo-Assyrian king Sennacherib assembled his forces against Ekron. Ekron was aided by the northwestern Arabian king Mutshri. The Assyrians defeated the Arabian army, then returned to Ekron, the age-old tactic of divide and conquer. Upon engaging the Ekronites in battle, Ekron quickly fell. Their leaders were executed, and the remaining people enslaved. Sennacherib wasn't done yet. Given how the Judeans had aided Ekron, the Assyrians turned their attention to Jerusalem where the Assyrians convinced the Judeans to set the Assyrian governor, Paddy, free. And by convinced, I mean that Sennacherib's forces attacked Jerusalem. Paddy was reinstalled as the leader of Ekron. At this point, the two most powerful cities in the greater region were Ashdod and Ekron, but they were still vassals to the Neo-Assyrian Empire. Artifacts dating to this period have yielded some interesting conclusions. One of the more so is an olive oil production center. This, and let's just call it a factory, in a rather loose sense, had in excess of 100 large olive oil presses. Not surprisingly, this is one of the most complete olive oil production centers from the period to ever have been uncovered. And it indicates that if olives weren't grown in the region, they were at least imported in vast quantities, enough to keep at least 115 presses and pressers busy. The estimated annual output from these presses was somewhere between 500 and 1,000 tons of oil. Given this, there were certainly associated industries, such as the production of clay jars, pottery really, to store and transport the oil. Given the population of the city at the time, and the assumed per capita consumption, the likely conclusion is that much of the oil manufactured there was exported to far-flung places, possibly as far as Persia, Babylon, other parts of Mesopotamia, and Egypt. 
Other uncovered evidence points to a well-planned city with distinct commercial and residential zones and the elite living apart from the commoners. Many of these buildings bore the inscription that they were dedicated to the Canaanite deity Ashara. Also found was a temple. What's unclear was if it was a Canaanite or Israelite temple, at least superficially. And given who controlled the city the longest and during the period, it was likely Canaanite. The temple did have an inner room. This could have been the Holy of Holies, or whatever the Canaanite version of that is. It also had Phoenician-inspired design influences. There is the thought that an inscription on the temple may refer to the Neo-Assyrian governor Paddy, or perhaps his son. There were depictions of Greek deities from the period. Overall, though, the weathering and multiple interpretations lead to no solid conclusions. The find also yielded an unusual amount of gold, silver, and bronze objects, including a gold cobra. There were unique ivory pieces thought to relate to the local interpretation of the Canaanite religion. Along with this were pictograms of Pharaoh Ramses VIII and Pharaoh Merneptah, and the head of what was likely a harp, or a really large lyre. Along came the Neo-Babylonians led by Nebuchadnezzar, who would conquer the greater region around 604 BC. It was at this point that the earliest references to the city by the name of Akurin can be found. This may have been the Babylonian name for it that stuck at least until the Maccabees. When the Babylonians conquered the city, they apparently razed or burned it, as it was largely abandoned, never again to see anything close to its former glory. About the only structure remaining from this period is a reasonably well-preserved Assyrian courtyard-type building. The city would remain marginally occupied through the Roman, Byzantine, and Islamic periods. The 4th century AD Christian Roman historian Jerome recorded that Ekron was to the east of Azotus in Ionia, which aligned with the location with the tell where all of the excavation has occurred though in a different record he mentioned it could be at another location. Either he forgot what he wrote earlier, or changed his mind. Either way, the general thinking is that he was mostly speculating in both cases, as he provided no real proof of either being correct. And that's it for Ekron, which would normally provide me with a good stopping point for this episode. But I teased something in the beginning, something I left out of the five-year anniversary update. The one thing I forgot to mention last week is that at some point in the coming year, the podcast will reach an inflection point, a place where a decision about the future has to be made. Just to be clear, it has nothing to do with the real future of the weekly series, but everything to do with how it's presented. The current hosting platform limits podcasts to 300 episodes, a threshold that I will cross in the next year, really in the next seven or so months. It's then that I will have to choose which route to take. Most podcasts, especially those that are current events oriented, like the daily news, simply delete a block of old episodes. But this series builds on itself 
with the first being necessary to understand the next. So that's not a viable option. I could find a new hosting service, but that brings its own host of problems. Specifically, migrating all of the episodes, setting them up, and a high level of quality assurance. Work that would likely consume several weeks. In case you haven't figured it out yet, I'm operating really close to my bandwidth limit, so that option isn't as viable either. Not to mention that all hosting sites have episode limits, so it merely delays the inevitable. The last option is to start what I call a new volume. Essentially, volume one of the podcast being chapters one through what will likely be either seven or eight, and volume two picking up where volume one leaves off. This, though, will require that all of my listeners search out the new volume and subscribe. As I sit here today, that last option seems the most viable, and if I choose to go that route, there will be plenty of forewarning when the switch needs to be made, potentially with a Volume 2 intro episode being published several weeks in advance so that you guys can find and subscribe before the real go-live date. Consider this the very far in advance heads up that a change is a-coming. That's enough about that for now. Join me next week when I'll continue pushing through the book of Joshua, starting with the Canaanite deity of Ekron, the one Beelzebub. You don't want to miss it. Comments and questions can be sent to comments at christianhistorypodcast.com. As always, you can find information about the podcast on the internet at christianhistorypodcast.com. This week, help others to find the podcast by leaving a positive review on iTunes. You can find the Facebook page by searching the phrase Christian History Podcast as three separate words. Once there, be sure to like the page so that it's easier to find later. Finally, if you're enjoying the podcast, subscribe so you get the episodes as soon as they are released and you don't miss out. Thanks for listening and have a great week.